0: Becoming like Christ is God's goal for his people. If you ever wake up in the morning and say, I wonder what God's goal for me today is, it's the same every day. Grow more like Jesus.
1: Welcome to the MANA Bible Lessons Podcast. MANA is a Bible study life group that meets at Valley Baptist Church in Bakersfield, California, every Sunday at 9.30 a.m. However, if you're listening from another part of the world, then we welcome you and we invite you to stay tuned after the lesson to hear how you can submit your prayer request to be on our prayer sheet. Thank you for joining us. And now here's Brad Hannock.
0: Thank you Marty Buck, fellow students, if you open your Bibles to Philippians, Philippians chapter 3, welcome, I see some new faces here, if you haven't been to Roundup Sunday before, it's a little wild and crazy, but that's what we do on a regular basis, we're studying Paul's letter to the church in Philippi, written around AD 61 or so, he was in prison in Rome, he's been in prison for about four years, just to anoint your perspective a little bit, The church at Philippi was founded by Paul and Timothy about 10 years before this. So it's been some time. And he wrote this letter to the church to thank them, number one, for the gift they sent him, and to tell him his condition. They hadn't heard from him in a number of years being in prison, so he wanted to write to them and tell them what was going on, and also thank them for the gift that they had sent. They're having a little trouble in their church with uh, personal rivalries, selfish ambitions, stuff that, of course, none of us here know anything about. So we read the book and we go, well, that resembles so-and-so, but it certainly doesn't resemble me, right? So personal rivalries and selfish ambition lead to disunity. So they were having some trouble with disunity, and he encouraged them strongly to walk in humility. Because humility creates unity. And then he lists Jesus, one of the high points of the epistle in chapter 2, as the perfect model of humility that we should be following. Now we're going to find out he warns them to resist legalistic Jews, number one, and libertine Gentiles, both of whom are enemies of the cross, and he reiterates in chapter three that God's goal for his people is to become more like Christ. If you want to know what you're supposed to be doing on planet earth, it's really, really simple. Growing more like Christ. Christ. And we know what he's like because the Bible is written to describe him in great detail. That is your mission on planet Earth, character and conduct more and more like Christ. Today's lesson, we're going to be looking at three things that will assist us in that process of growing like Christ. And we're going to begin the study today in chapter 3, verse 17. So if you open your Bible, Philippians 3, verse 17, brethren, join in following my example and observe those who walk according to the pattern you have in us. Here's the principle. Becoming like Christ is God's goal for his people. The lives of growing Christians can show us how God does it. Becoming like Christ is God's goal for his people. The lives of growing Christians can show us how God does it. So this is our life purpose, to grow more and more like Jesus. See, God saves us for two reasons. Number one, he saves us negatively from sin and death. So we're saved from hell through the blood of Jesus Christ, but positively he saves us in order to shape us more and more like his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. So Jesus, his character, his conduct, it's, he's the template, he's the prototype, he's the blueprint. If you want to know what our goal is, what we're uh, moving toward, he is how we should think and act. So when we look at the life of Christ, we see God's plan for how we want to be. What we can't see is how to get there, how to become more Christ-like. See, Jesus is the model, but Jesus can't show us how to move from imperfection to perfection because Jesus always was perfect. We need fallen Christians, sinners, maturing, growing to show us the path, how to move more and more and more Christ-like. Christ is the perfect model but he never sinned. So he's the template, and Paul says, God in his infinite mercy has given us human examples to show us how to grow more and more Christ-like. Paul says, follow my example. 1 Corinthians 11 says, Be imitators of me, just as also I am of Christ. I've often wondered, why didn't Paul just say, imitate Christ? Why did he say, imitate me as I imitate Christ? We need human models. Paul says, follow me in the same way that I follow Christ. See, our focus is not on ourselves. It should not be on ourselves. Our focus is on Jesus. People who are preoccupied with themselves, you know anybody like that? All they think about is, c'est moi, me, myself, and I, and they are the center of their universe. They're the largest fish in the pond, and they swim in a thimble. That's how you get to be the biggest (laughs) fish in the pond, right? You just shrink your world until you're the only one in it, right? Then you don't have to grow at all. Paul was preoccupied with Christ, and he throws our focus to being preoccupied with Christ in order to become like him. And he says, God has given us human models, people that have gone on before us, people who have walked the walk of faith. Hebrews 12 talks about the great cloud of witnesses, to flesh out this process of becoming like Christ by looking at people who are a bit further down the path than we are. And he says in verse 17, Observe those who walk according to the pattern you have in us. In other words, if you're looking at human beings, pay very close attention to, their fo- to who you're following to make sure they're in fact following Christ. See, you won't know if they're following Christ if you don't know Christ himself. How many of you are amazed at some of the foolishness that is taught on television or live streaming that passes for Christian doctrine, and it is absolutely non-biblical? And they describe Jesus in terms that have no bearing on reality. Well, you know that because you know the real thing, right? People that ought to know better continually are getting led astray because they don't know the genuine article. If If you don't know the genuine article you'll be fooled by counterfeiters. So the best way to know Christ, two basic ways. Number one, we do it here every week, every Sunday, and you should be doing it every day. Open up the Word of God and read it. Jesus Christ is described in great detail in this book. You don't need to read something else. Go to the source, number one. And number two, ask the Holy Spirit to shape you more like Jesus. As a matter of fact, Your circumstances this last week were custom-designed by God to make you more like Jesus. That's why they were painful, right? God's got good sandpaper to shape us more like Jesus, right? Human models are helpful, but there is no substitute for knowing Jesus personally. Longfellow wrote a poem. He's a poet a couple centuries ago. The Courtship of Miles Standish. And in this poem, he records that the recently widowed, Mild Standish, this was a, during the Puritan pilgrim times, he asks his roommate, John Alden, he says, can you propose marriage to this 18-year-old Priscilla Mullins for me? Like, propose marriage for me. I'm a little scared. I'm not going to go do it, so can you do it for me? And Priscilla's reported to ask John, why don't you speak for yourself, John? Well, apparently he did, because they got married and had ten children together. So, clearly, it obviously worked. Your relationship with Jesus is personal. There is no substitute. You don't have your relationship with Jesus intermediated through a third party, like a priest, a pastor, a parent. You must know Jesus yourself. That's the whole point. Unfortunately, not everyone who claims to know Jesus really belongs to him. Look at verse 18 and 19. Paul warns the church now. He says, follow our example as we follow Christ, but, verse 18, for many walk, of whom I often told you, and now tell you even weeping, that they are enemies of the cross. Verse 19, whose end is destruction, whose God is their appetite, whose glory is their shame, who set their minds on earthly things. Here's the principle. Enemies of the cross are idolaters who distort the gospel. They value earthly pleasures more than eternal treasures. Let me say that again. Enemies of the cross are idolaters who distort the gospel. They value earthly pleasures more than eternal treasures. Paul uses this word walk. He's talking about, when he uses the word walk, it means habitual conduct. It's how you live. It's a lifestyle. If you walk according to ABC, it means it's a habitual lifestyle. These people he's describing, these enemies of the cross, they have a lifestyle of deception. They pretend to follow Christ, but in fact, they're really enemies of the cross. And Paul says, I've warned you about them before when I was present with you a number of years ago. You still have to watch out for these counterfeiters, these false teachers. By the way, false teachers seldom come along and have a sign that says, I am a false teacher. They don't do that, right? They don't do that. When you see them on TV, they don't have a spiritual deceptor on their screen. If they openly declare their opposition to the gospel, most of us would say, wow, he even said he was a false teacher. Well, let's avoid that one, right? A wolf in sheep's clothing looks like a sheep, talks like a sheep, acts like a sheep, but they always end up eating the sheep, right? That's the clue, and they do it through deception. These false teachers Paul is warning about are probably members of the church. They may be well-respected in the church. They might be even leaders of the church. It requires discernment to recognize spiritual deception. Paul is weeping over this because he's a faithful shepherd, He cares deeply about the souls of the people God's entrusted to him. And he says, these deceivers, even though they may look like sheep, talk like sheep, bat like sheep, they're enemies of the cross of Jesus Christ. And of course, to know that, you have to know what the cross of Jesus Christ stands for. The gospel is the good news that we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, plus nothing. We are saved through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ who paid the penalty for sin, our sin, by dying in our place. And as Pastor Roger talked about this morning, he conquered sin and death by rising from the dead. On that basis, God forgives us, takes our sin, puts it on Jesus' account, takes Jesus' righteousness, puts it on our account so that we can spend eternity with God in heaven. Nothing more and nothing less. Now, You know an enemy of the cross because they always adulterate the gospel. Always. They either add to the gospel or they subtract from the gospel. They don't believe it and obey it exactly as God gave it. In Paul's day, and even in our day, people who distort the gospel generally come in one of two varieties. The Judaizers, those were Jews in Paul's day, very legalistic Jews, They taught that faith alone in Christ alone was not sufficient for salvation. I mean, it was good. The death and burial of Jesus was very good, but it wasn't enough. You have to add human works to Christ's work in order to be saved. Faith alone is insufficient for salvation. That's a lie because it contradicts the direct teaching of Scripture. They taught that God needs your help in order to get you into heaven, human help. Specifically, this group taught that circumcision, obedience to the Mosaic law was necessary in order to practice God's favor. Most people don't teach obedience to the Mosaic law and circumcision as a means of salvation, but we've got all sorts of religious groups that teach all sorts of things that add to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Remember what Jesus said on the cross just before he died. Tetelestai, it is finished. That translates paid in full. There is no sin debt that you still owe. On your sin balance account, there is zero balance if you've trusted Christ's payment for your sin. There is nothing you can add to the gospel because there is nothing left to pay. We sing the song what? Jesus paid it all, correct? 1 Peter 3.18, For Christ also died for sins, once for all, the just for the unjust, in order that he might bring us to God, having but put to death in the flesh, but made a light in the spirit. Now, every religion on planet Earth, except Christianity, refuses to believe this. And therefore, every religion except Christianity is an enemy of the cross of Christ. Religious sinners are the worst kind of sinners. Religious sinners want to put God in their debt. People that say you have to add to the gospel really want to force God to let them into heaven on their terms, not God's terms. Here's a clue. God does everything on his terms, right? It's his house. Heaven is his house. And so he decides who gets into his house. Yes, When you own your home, how would you feel if someone came kicking in your back door and said, I've decided that you've got a really nice house here, and I want to live here, and I want you to take care of me for the rest of my life because I'm a really good person. You would say, whoa, 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 whoa. This is my house. I make the rules for this house. Well, heaven is God's house. He makes the rules for his house. You want to get to his house? You're going to come through Jesus Christ on his terms. The Bible says salvation is from the Lord and only the Lord. So that's the people who add to the gospel, and you'll see lots of them today. There's always something humans have to add. Number two, the second group were enemies of the cross who didn't add to the gospel, they subtracted from it. They took something away from it. They were probably Gentiles we call Gnostics. Gnostics means knowledge, and these Gnostics had a belief that they had special secret inside information, right? That only was reserved for insiders. And they believed that the spirit was good, and the body, all matter, physical matter, all physical matter was evil. So only the spirit was good. And since the physical body, that one you sit in right now, is matter, it's evil. And it's unredeemable. They said, Jesus saves my spirit, not my body. Therefore, what I do with my body doesn't matter. Because matter doesn't matter. All matter is evil, right? The body is not redeemable. So it gave them a ready-made excuse to indulge in every sensual desire without restraint because my body's not going to heaven anyway. So I can sin with my body without restraint. The theological term for this is antinomianism. It's a real fancy word. Anti means what? Against. Nomos means law. So they literally mean against the law. Just in case you're wondering, our culture is increasingly against the law. We increasingly live in a law-less culture where people say, ain't nobody going to tell me what to do, no way, no how, and we all want to do exactly what we want to do, and when you wind up doing that, you wind up with chaos, to say the least. So this group believed that God's grace, which saved their spirit, released them from any obligation to any moral law whatsoever. Uh, In our contemporary terms, we would call these people libertines, L-I-B-E-R-T-I-N-E, libertine. It means debauched, defiled, corrupted. It literally means without restraint. And we have a culture that literally lives without restraint. Now, people who practice this stuff subtract from the gospel in that they pull holy living right out of the gospel. See, God's purpose in saving us from sin was not just to free us from the penalty of sin, death, and hell, God wants us to stop sinning. Is that a surprise? He really does want us to stop sinning. Romans 6:1. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace might increase? May it never be. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? 1 Corinthians or 2 Corinthians 5.17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things passed away. Behold, new things are come. See, at salvation, we were given a new nature. We were given the nature, God's nature, and that nature hates sin and desires to please God. By the way, in case you were wondering, you still have your old sin nature. Yes? You still have a we still have a predilection to sin. And so now we have warfare between the new nature that wants to please God and hate sin and the old nature that wants to rebel against God and loves to sin. And that warfare will continue until the day you leave here and go to heaven, and then you're freed from the presence of sin. So enemies of the cross come in two camps. Legalists add works to God's grace. Libertines subtract holy living from God's grace, and they sin with delight. Paul now gives us a fourfold description of these two characters. Number one, he says their end is destruction. Enemies of the cross end up in hell. Destruction means complete ruin of both the body and the soul. By the way, it does not mean annihilationism or non-existence. There's a tremendous number of people that sin without restraint that are dearly hoping that when they die, they just go in the ground and push up daisies and that's it. Because on one level, their heart tells them, you know, there could be payday someday for this stuff, and I hope when I die, I really die. No, 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 the soul lives forever. The location of where you're going to reside depends on your relationship with Jesus Christ. God has pretty strong things to say about people who add or subtract from his word like these characters do. Revelation 22, 18 says, I testify to everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, if anyone adds to them. God shall add to him the plagues which are written in this book. Verse 19, And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God shall take away his part from the tree of life and from the holy city which are written in this book. So God's word tells sinful human beings how to have a right relationship with holy God. And there is how many ways to God? One. Jesus said over and over, And he said it very clearly in John 14, I am the way, not a way. When you talk to the Jehovah Witnesses and other people, they mistranslate and they said a way. It is the singular way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. And when human beings adulterate God's word by adding to it or subtracting from it, they are rebelling against God's sovereign rule. So they're in this destruction. Number two, what else do we know about enemies of the cross? Their appetite is their God. Enemies of the cross, both legalists and libertines, really are idol worshipers. What's an idol? An idol is anything in your life that you value more than your relationship with Jesus Christ. It could be your spouse. It could be a child. It could be a grandchild. It could be your job. It could be food. It could be, it could be many good things. God gave us all things to enjoy, but he only gave us one thing to worship. that's himself. Now, when you apply this to the Judaizers, it probably refers to their legal observance of dietary restrictions. They had all sorts of things that they believed would save them and they elevated them above the work of Jesus Christ. If you apply this appetite business to to the Greeks, the Gentiles, the Libertines, it probably referred to gluttony, but it really referred to generally a lifestyle of indulgence. These were people who indulged the flesh in every possible imaginable way. It could be food, drink, sex, violence, entertainment. And we live in a culture where indulgence is kind of our middle name, kind of our first name, right? Enemies of the cross do not discipline their appetites. They don't know how to say no to themselves. They indulge them because they love their sin more than they love Jesus. If someone sins and delights in it, it's because they love it more than they love Jesus, right? That's pretty descriptive. Number three, what is the third description? Their glory is their shame. In other words, enemies of the cross are proud of things they ought to be ashamed of. And we have an entire culture that posts things on social media that you're saying, Oh, I can't believe you would do it, number one. Number two, I can't believe you would post it. TMI, way TMI. You know, a little repression here would be good. Just stuff yourself. Pardon my friend. So we've got the Jewish legalists, and they're boasting about their good works. They have actually more faith in their good works than they do in Jesus Christ, right? They think God obligates, is obligated to bless me. So they're glorying stuff they ought not to glory with because God rejects any human attempt to buy his favor with good deeds. You cannot buy the love of God with your behavior. Isaiah 64, 6 says, And all our righteous deeds are like filthy rags. That literally means a minstrel cloth. We would say that's as disgusting as a dirty diaper. And I changed a really applesauce diaper this week. And I'll tell you, you know, really good news. I can smell it. For someone who had COVID, that's, you know, I'm going, this is positive. You know, I just smells, I can smell. It's coming back. The old man is coming back. Yes. Okay. You know. I mean, things that excite you when you get to my age. I mean, that's a little strange. You know, diapers. Whatever. Count your blessings. Count your blessings right. <laughs> yep. Yep. TMI. Yeah. TMI. Yes. That's probably true too. So that that's that's on one hand. The, these Greek libertines, the ones that believed if you sin and enjoy it, they had a depraved mind. And depraved means corrupt, immoral, shameful. A depraved mind celebrates what's corrupt. A depraved mind honors what's immoral. And they take pride in practicing evil. And God has some very strong things to say about them in Romans 1.32. And although they knew the ordinance of God, that those who practice such things are worthy of death, they not only do the same, but they give hearty approval to those who practice them. So, Enemies of the cross love what God hates, and they're experts at doing evil. They're practiced, and they're good at it. And the last thing, enemies of the cross set their mind on earthly things. They habitually think about and passionately pursue earthly things. They value the things of this earth more than they value a relationship with Christ. Now, by the way, earthly things just refers to anything on planet Earth. It may it be good in itself. It may be a gift of God, it probably is. But if we value them more than God, they become idols. Now, the, the legalists here, they, they valued these religious disciplines and displays of ceremony and ritual. They had all these ritualistic things they had to do. If you look at the Jewish Pharisees, there were 632 ceremonial laws they had to keep and all this other stuff. And we see this today. There are churches that you attend today, and they've got elaborate rituals and ceremonies and chants and all this other stuff that they believe is going to earn them favor with God. Today's sensualists believe the motto simply, if it feels good, do it. If it feels good today, do it. Now, when you talk to folks like that 10, 15 years later, and they're experiencing the consequences, they say, well, it seemed like a good idea at the time. You know, I'll tell you what's a good idea at the time. Obey the scriptures. The consequences are much superior to disobedience, right? The people that, whose God is their flesh and who set their mind on earthly things, they value the pleasures of the senses and they despise the pleasures of the soul. They believe if you achieve more goals, get more stuff, enjoy more pleasurable experiences, you will find satisfaction. I find it utterly fascinating that in the mid-60s, one of the wealthiest rock groups in the world, the Rolling Stones, Mick Jagger, saying, I can't get no. And he had whatever money could buy. Whatever money could buy. It's true. There is no satisfaction for the soul found on things of earth. Ultimately, joy, contentment, fulfillment, all that stuff, comes from a right relationship with your Creator, not from temporary earthly pleasures. And as citizens of heaven, what we need to do is view this life on earth from the point of view of heaven, Colossians 3. Paul writes, Since, if then, since you have been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things above, not on the things that are on earth, for you have been died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. He doesn't say, don't think about the things of the earth. You have bills to pay, go to work, etc. He says, don't value the things of earth more than you value your relationship with Jesus Christ. You want a good good Old Testament example, look at the life of Lot. Lot was Abraham's nephew, and he moved to the rich, well-watered plains of the River Jordan Valley, Because his mind was set, he valued earthly things. Beautiful agricultural cropland, beautiful well-watered area for flocks and herds. He valued material health more than spiritual health. Unfortunately, in the backyard of that area were a couple of cities called Sodom and Gomorrah. And eventually, his family was infected by the germ of their evil. And he was willing to put up with that because acquiring earthly wealth was a higher priority than the spiritual welfare of his family. He didn't know that God had a due date to destruct these cities with probably an earthquake and a volcano. And at that point in time, he lost all his wealth and all his influence. And he was so attached to Sodom and Gomorrah, the angels had to drag him physically out of the city. That's what corruption can do you wind up tolerating and embracing stuff that years before you would say, I would never do that. Well, you hang around it long enough, pretty soon you become acclimatized to evil, and pretty soon it becomes infectious. And that's what happened to him. He even lost his wife, barely escaped with his life. You want an example on the other hand? Moses. Moses was born son of Pharaoh's daughter, obviously adopted by the the daughter of Pharaoh. He was the crown prince to be. When he grew up, it says he refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. He refused the crown prince of Egypt. He lived by faith, chose to suffer hardship with God's people in the wilderness, instead of, it says, enjoying the temporary pleasures of sin. You might want to underline that. Sin does feel good, else we wouldn't do it. I mean, if every time we sinned, we got a 220 electric shock, we would go, well, I don't think I'll touch that again. Right? I mean, it doesn't take much to do that, but sin feels good. Temporarily. Only temporarily. Hebrews 11 tells us what motivated Moses. Verse 26. Hebrews 11:26. 26. Moses considered the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures of Egypt, For he was looking for the reward. By faith he left Egypt, not fearing the wrath of the king. For he endured as seeing whom is unseen. He valued knowing and following God more than becoming the next pharaoh of the Egyptian empire. I mean, I thought about that. And I thought, you know, Moses could probably rationalize, you know, if I'm the pharaoh of Egypt, think about how much good I could do I mean, I would be in a position of tremendous power. But I think on one level, number one, he understood that his relationship with God was primary. But number two, like Lot, he would have been corrupted by the power that he wielded. Be very careful about choice of your environment. You too can be influenced. That's why all those ads show up on your your screen. right? They know they can influence you. So, it's interesting that Moses was motivated by rewards, but he wanted the everlasting rewards of heaven, not the temporary rewards of earth. By the way, God did create us to be motivated by rewards. It is not wrong to be ambitious for rewards, as long as we understand that they're heavenly rewards and not earthly rewards taking priority over that. Lastly, Paul now is going to reveal the motivation of those who are citizens of heaven. He says, you're citizens of heaven, that's yet your DNA. And he says, I want you to understand, and I want you to answer the question. First, earlier in chapter 3, he says, my whole mission in life is to know Christ, and I am pressing on with everything I have to know Christ better. So the question would be, What would motivate someone to pursue Christ above all else? What would motivate anyone to regard everything as rubbish compared to knowing Christ? Why would you pursue Christ like a runner pursuing the finish line in the Olympic final? Because earth is temporary, and followers of Jesus will live forever with Him in heaven. Verse 20, For our citizenship is in heaven from which we also eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Here's the principle. Since heaven is our home, we should prepare for Christ's return by seeking to become more like Jesus every day. Since heaven is our home, we should prepare for Christ's return by seeking to become more like Jesus every day. See, at the moment of salvation, your citizenship changed. Before Christ, you were subject to the law of sin and of death. You were part of Satan's kingdom. At salvation, you became subject to law to the spirit of life in Christ Jesus, and you got transferred out of Satan's kingdom into God's kingdom. We are citizens of heaven even though you reside temporarily on earth. See, the church is really a colony of heaven. It's just an outpost of heaven here on earth. Your citizenship in heaven is your spiritual DNA as in heaven, and you just have a temporary job description down here as ambassadors for Christ on planet earth. But you're not staying here. You're leaving. Soon. We all are, right? And we have rights and responsibilities that are determined by our Creator. He says, here's the rights and responsibilities you have on earth, and here's your responsibilities, and responsibilities toward heaven. We live in the world. Yes, you're here with your physical bodies but you are not of the world. You have a new nature. You have a heavenly DNA. You have a spiritual DNA. You have Christ's DNA. To put it in ecological terms, this world system is not our natural habitat. We are living in a foreign land. And just as you know, when you get older, it gets foreigner and foreigner every year that goes by, right? You look at stuff occurring and you go, What's that all about? We should not be surprised. What did Jesus say to Pilate? My kingdom is not of this world. Jesus said in Matthew 24, 35, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. Now the reality is, most of us are going to pass away before the earth passes away. We're going to leave this place before it leaves us. Our homeland, our destiny, is the heavenly city, heaven. And God described Abraham, another great man of faith, in Hebrews 11:9, 9, it says, By faith he, Abraham, lived as an alien in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, fellow heirs of the same promise. For he was looking for the city which has foundations, whose architect and builder is God. Now Abraham was a sojourner. He was a pilgrim. I mean, someone who's on a spiritual journey. He was an alien, which means he didn't belong in Canaan, the land of promise. It was a a temporary dwelling place for him. It was a foreign land. And Abraham's hope was not on earth. By the way, foreign means strange, different, unfamiliar. Abraham was looking and traveling to the eternal city, the new Jerusalem. And if you want a good description of where you're headed, you need to open the Bible up and read Revelation 21 it gives you a really marvelous description about where you're going. And if you know you're going there, it's a good idea to get ready now. Like when you travel, you pack a suitcase, right? And what do you put in? You put in the clothes that are appropriate for the climate you're going to. Years ago, we were in the Caribbean and Mr. Brilliant here got on the airplane with shorts because it was really, really hot where we were. And it was November, and we flew through Houston. <laughs> and of course, they have the luggage. And I'm sitting in shorts in the airport for six hours at midnight, and, or not quite six hours, but it was the long wait, two, three hours, and I'm freezing, and I'm going, what was I thinking? What was I thinking? Dress for where you're headed, right? Y'all know that. Verse 20. We wait eagerly for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, he says, look, you don't just belong to heaven. You're eagerly waiting for Jesus, the king of heaven, to return. And Jesus told us what to do in Mark 13, He says, take heed, keep on the alert, for you do not know when the appointed time is. It is like a man away on a journey, who upon leaving his house and putting his slaves in charge, assigning to each one his task, also commanded the doorkeeper to stay on the alert. Therefore, you be on the alert, for you do not know when the master of the house is coming, whether in the evening, at midnight, at cock crowing, or in their moaning, lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. And what I say to you all, I say, be on the alert. Now we know Jesus is coming back to planet Earth. It's called the rapture. We don't know when it's going to come, but we do know he's coming, and it could be at any moment. If he showed up this afternoon, are you ready for him to show up? We need to be living in a state of perpetual preparation, and Jesus is the master of preparation. He told us in John 14... In my Father's house are many dwelling places, if it were not so, I would have told you, for I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. He's just going to be crucified, and he tells them, I'm leaving. And they're really, really upset, the disciples. He says, I'll tell you why I'm leaving. I'm leaving to go back to heaven to build you a dwelling place so you will have a place to stay with me for all eternity. And I'm going to come back, and I'm going to take you with me. Dwelling place has the idea of, of, of a multi-room mansion or, or home, if you will. Now, when you go to heaven, you're going to need different bodies than the one you have now. I can tell that already just by looking at you, right? Verse, <laughs> I do. I'm talking to me. Verse 21, who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of his glory. Here's the principle. In heaven, Jesus will transform our mortal bodies and we will be made like him. In heaven, Jesus will transform our mortal bodies and we will be made like him. Now remember, Jesus' physical body was crucified, dead, and buried. On the third day, he rose from the dead. But the body that came out of the grave was not the same body that went into the grave. He was still recognizable, but his body was now glorified. It is no longer limited by time and space. You read John 20, and it tells us several occasions where Jesus just showed up in the middle of a room. The doors are locked, he just poof, shows up, right? He's not restricted by space and time. And 1 Corinthians 15 tells us that Our resurrection bodies, the body you're going to get in heaven, is going to be a serious upgrade from the one you have now, right? 1 Corinthians 15, 20. It says, now Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who are asleep, verse 42, so also is the resurrection from the dead. Now he's going to describe the body you have now, and he's going to describe the body that is to come. This should give most of us, all of us, a great deal of hope. It is sown a perishable body. That's the one you have now. It is raised an imperishable body. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. So Christ was the first to be resurrected from the dead. Now in the Old Testament, there's accounts of people coming back to life from the dead. Guess what? When they came back, they came back to the same weary old body they left with the same aches and pains they had when they left it right the first fruits means that Christ was the first to be resurrected he's the prototype for us he's the first one but we are going to follow in his footsteps our resurrection in the future our present bodies are perishable decaying weak and physical and they're designed to live on earth When you move to a different environment, you're going to have to have a body that is appropriate for that environment, and heaven is completely different than earth. That future resurrection body will be imperishable, glorious, powerful, and spiritual, and is designed to live in heaven. Okay, Brad, how's that going to happen? Well, it's a mystery. 1 Corinthians 15, 51 tells us that. It says, behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable. And this has got to be one of the greatest understatements in all of the Bible. And we shall be changed. You think? For the perishable must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. Now, in Corinthians, Paul uses the word change to describe what will happen. In Philippians, he uses the word transformed. Now, a closely related word to transformed is metamorphosis. Meta means change, morphe means form. Transformation or metamorphosis is not cosmetic. It's literally being made new from the inside out. A chameleon changing its color, that's cosmetic. Putting lipstick on a pig, that's (laughs) really cosmetic. You're really hopeful when you do that, right? Transformation or metamorphosis is when a caterpillar springs a chrysalis. 10 to 14 days later, out comes a beautiful caterpillar, right? Not really. There is a butterfly that bears absolutely no resemblance to this caterpillar, right? This butterfly has a new form, new nature, new condition, new structure, new substance. That's what your resurrection body will have. It's designed to live forever in heaven. And you say, how is all this going to happen? Read verse 21 of Philippians 3. By the exertion of the power that Christ has even to subject all things to himself. Here's the principle. Jesus will use his unlimited power to subject the entire universe under his perfect rule. Jesus will use his unlimited power to subject the entire universe under his perfect rule. The older we get in the faith, the more we long for that day. Because this planet needs a world ruler. And the only one qualified is Jesus Christ. Because he created it and all authority has been given to me, as Jesus said, right? Matthew 28, therefore go. 1 Corinthians 15, 24 tells us, then comes the end, when he, Christ, delivers up the kingdom, talking about the universe, to God the Father, when he, Christ, has abolished all rule, all authority, all power, for he, Christ, must reign until he has put all enemies under his feet, The last enemy that will be abolished is death. Now, these verses describe the end and the reversal of the curse in Genesis 3. You want to know why people die? It's because Adam and Eve sinned. Lust produces sin, produces death. Death is the ultimate outcome of sin. And Christ is going to put an end to all evil. Evil people, evil angels, evil authorities, Satan, etc., etc. The final enemy, interestingly enough, is not Satan. It's death. When you go to funerals, I'm going to get real direct here, there is something in us that rebels against the idea of death. Death feels so unnatural. It feels so wrong. That's because it is wrong. It comes from death. It is not normal. Christ did not create the universe with death as part of the original creation. We were meant to live forever. And the redeemed will live forever. And your physical bodies will live forever. Christ not only redeems your spirit, he redeems your body. And heaven is a physical, spiritual place where you and I will live forever, and Christ is the prototype. He is the God-man, a physical Christ in heaven, a spiritual Christ in heaven, and we will be made like him. Now, you can get your mind blown trying to think about that, but I want you to know the redemption that Jesus Christ has produced for us through his death, burial, and resurrection is beyond our wildest imagination. Truly. Sin produces death because it separates us from God, the source of life. But at the end, when sin and unrepentant sinners have been destroyed, death itself will be destroyed by God, by Jesus Christ, and the redeemed will live forever with Christ in heaven. That is not false hope. That is certain hope based on the promises of God. And when you look around the world today, and you see we are lurching from stupid to stupider, which is what happens when you turn your back on Christ, you you do get stupid because sin makes you stupid. It really does. Sin separates you from the source of all wisdom. Sin separates you from the source of all life. So when you are saved and redeemed and you have a life-giving relationship with Jesus Christ, you not only get wisdom, you not only get forgiveness, you get hope. In the middle of all the mess we see on planet Earth, Paul writes... Set your mind on the things above. Focus on what is to come, and that will give you perspective in managing the things God has given you to do today. Does that make sense so far? Okay, let me summarize, and then we'll do prayer and praise. Point one, becoming like Christ is God's goal for his people. If you ever wake up in the morning and say, I wonder what God's goal for me today is? It's the same every day. Grow more like Jesus. And if you want to look, you look at Christ, number one. Number two, God has put growing Christians in your life to show you that process. Number two, enemies of the cross are idolaters. They distort the gospel. They value earthly pleasures more than eternal treasures. Number three, since heaven is our home, we should prepare for Christ's return by seeking to become more like Jesus every day. Christ is coming back the way you get ready for him to come back, is working diligently, cooperating with the Holy Spirit to behave like Jesus, to think like Jesus, to have your DNA changed by the Holy Spirit more like Jesus every day. Number four, in heaven, Jesus will transform our mortal bodies and we will be like him. John tells us that. And lastly, Jesus will use his unlimited power to subject the entire universe under his perfect rule. Right now, that's not the case. God has given Satan reign to operate on planet Earth. And I know many of you were saying, God, can you just shorten his leash? Well, when he's in the lake of fire, there'll be no leash to shorten. But we need to live with a reality of mind that Jesus Christ is in control of every single thing that happens. Everything. This week, you're going to get challenged on that. Remember, everything that happens in your life when you know Jesus crosses his desk before you get it. And everything is custom designed to make you more like him. I love you all. Thanks for listening. Great to see some new faces. Looking forward to seeing you next week. Now that you know, you do. do.